back to the Athletic NFL Podcast. I'm Mike Sando, senior writer for The Athletic. You can find me at Sando NFL. I'm joined here today again by former NFL Executive of the Year, Randy Mueller. You can find Randy at RandyMueller underscore on Twitter and at MuellerFootball.com where you can find some of his most recent work, including detailed breakdowns on the Pac-12 quarterbacks. I, I do the quarterback tiers every year. Randy, your Pac-12 breakdown was amazing. Randy's got more than 30 years of NFL experience at basically all levels. I mean, almost from ball boy to, to GM. So it, he's an incredible resource for us here. Randy, hello. How are you this morning? Doing great, Mike. Uh, I don't know about that introduction. I feel a little pressure already. <laughs> well, we're going to not waste anybody's time. You and I both agree that we don't assume that people have all day. So we're going to give you the topics right now. We are going to discuss three of them, three main ones. We've, we're going to hit the early wave of the COVID-related player opt-outs with some focus on the Patriots. They've been the hardest hit. Uh, our second item today, we'll look at the 49ers and the Vikings, where they stand after extending the contracts of their general managers, John Lynch and Rick Spielman. And then with the potential rebirth of the XFL under an ownership group featuring Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, seems to be a wrestling theme here. Um, we're going to talk about that and what the impact could be on the NFL. And Randy is just incredibly well positioned to talk about the XFL because just recently he was in charge of pro personnel for the Houston Roughnecks there. So uh, we will hit on those three. We're going to keep it moving quick. Randy, the opt-outs, the big story. I think we had 56 of them initially. Uh, there's probably going to be some more before the deadline. I think a lot of those players are probably low odds to be high producers, but they did combine to start 215 games, about four four per player. A lot of those concentrated on New England players. Seven of the eight Patriots started games last season. Their absence clears $34 million in cap. Initial thoughts? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot to, to chew on right there. Obviously, uh, you're correct, and, and, and I agree that the Patriots are the most affected by all this. Um, they had... Uh, like you said, up to eight players right now have, have opted out. But the big name guys really came from their group with the Marcus Cannon, you know, Patrick Chung, Dante Hightower. Those are legitimate NFL players. And and you're right, it does free up some money, but it brings up the next question. What, do they, what would they do with that money? It's not like there's a lot of money or a lot of players on the street right now to sign. So teams are pretty much uh, built right now to go to camp. Maybe they end up uh, adding a couple guys. I think they were actually looking for a tackle before this happened with Marcus Cannon. And so they may keep that on the list, maybe push it up to the top of their priority list. And they might need a linebacker. But I think the interesting thing to me was about that, the $34 million that they free up. If they don't spend that, it's going to be pushed off into next year. And next year's cap, as we all know, is going way down. This could help alleviate some problems there for them next year with regard to cap, because it would not surprise me if one or two of these guys retired. You're talking about some older veterans. You know, Patrick Chung is older, 33 years old, High, Hightower 30, Marcus Cannon 32, and, and had kind of rumored to, to be stepping away from it anyway. So I think the cap ramifications this year are obvious. The ones next year might not be so obvious, but as usual, Bill Belichick might be ahead of the curve here and save some money. 
Yeah, well, so so I think most of us from the outside and the and the fans certainly, you saw Tom Brady leave, and, and you think, okay, what can they do to be good and keep patch it together and still be good with without Tom Brady? So they get Cam Newton, but really in the big picture, one of the interesting things to me is that they didn't lose Tom Brady. They decided not to bring him back. I mean, this was set in motion. They're not just waking up and going, oh shoot, we lost Brady. They started a transition here anyway. And so these players you mentioned know that too. Um, I think it's a risk for them. It, you know, obviously they're they're getting they're opting out for potentially very valid COVID reasons. But from a football standpoint, this could really put them at risk uh, because they're a team in transition anyway. Do do we see this just as part of what Bill Belichick was maybe going to do anyway over the next year? Now it just gets accelerated because the players opted out. I think uh, 100%. I think you're right. It, it, it's risky in the standpoint that they did choose to, to let Tom Brady go. You're right. It's viewed differently on the inside. They made the decision that they weren't going to re-sign him probably a year ago, maybe even sooner, because they they had been redoing his deal all along and extending it and guaranteeing money. They elected at some point not to do that. So they did that. I think it would have been really risky had Jared Stidham been their only option at quarterback. And you might have seen more opt-outs at that point, because these veterans aren't really interested in rebuilding a, a franchise or being part of that. Going out there on Sundays is hard work, and it's life and death sometimes because of the amount of physical contact these guys are going through. I always felt like as a GM, walking downstairs and walking through that locker room and having to look those guys in the eye was the hardest job I had because I had to make them happy too. They're big critics, and they do not want to rebuild. They don't want to hear the R word. And I think Bill Belichick kind of lessened his risk, obviously, by signing Cam Newton. Then some veterans kind of reconsidered and said, well, maybe we're not totally rebuilding. Let's go. But at the same time, I think there is a transition here. Bill has to turn the page on Tom Brady, and this is all part of it. And players can either buy in or not for whatever reason now. And uh, they've chosen some of these guys to, to back away, at least temporarily, maybe for a little recharge. But there's obvious reasons why uh, 33-year-olds would not want to play in a rebuilding system right now. Yeah, so you know, I've been so so interested in the you know how the Patriots have done this over the years, and it's been hard to separate Belichick or Brady, right? Can they do a rebuild without Tom Brady, or you know, was his leadership so indispensable for kind of keeping guys in line? Is the right maybe not the exact word, but you know what I mean. Where it hasn't been the funnest place, you know what I mean, and yet. He, They've been able to have this old school setup where, you know, hey, every, Tom Brady runs uh, sprints after they screw up in practice, right? Um, can that continue to work without Brady? Well, without I think Brady. it's, I think really in that system, and, and again, I would never demean Tom Brady, but that is a culture. That is a culture that Bill has set years ago that Tom kind of bought into himself. So I think there's no question that the leader of that group is Bill Belichick. And so those guys have all come up under that culture. And yeah, it's a grind. It's, it's not for everybody all the time, but I think that still exists. So I do think the leadership will be there. Um, I think in their case, he already knows that it may not be about the best players coming together. It's the best team playing the best. And he's going to have to do that now more than ever before because he's going to have to move some pieces around. You know, he's made a living with versatility on players, moving guys from offense to defense, all kinds of stuff. That's obviously going to be tested this year because he's got a lot of moving parts. I'm not going to bet against Belichick with all the moving parts. Are they thanking for Tua? No, no way. Not Tua, but not uh, Trevor Lawrence now, sorry. <laughs> I, I hear that, and, and, and I don't – it sometimes makes – 
my head bust when I hear about the tanking stuff because there is no tanking in the NFL and I don't care what the media says the Jets didn't do it two years ago Miami didn't do it last year they are trying their ass off to win every week just trust me that's just the way it is there is nobody tanking because you know what tanking is going to get someone else your chair so they are trying hard and I don't <laughs> think it's any different in New England there is not a non-competitive tissue in in Bill Belichick's body that's going to allow him to lose on purpose or to tank. Plus, football is so different than basketball or even baseball. Because of the physicality of what you do out there, you cannot go less than 100%. And even in the front office, you can't give less than 100% by, by looking those players in the eye and saying, we're not doing the best to put our team together to win right now. You just can't do that. Yep, and I think we saw last year Miami was historically bad early, and by the end of the year they're improving, they're working at it, and they don't have that Belichick culture, Brady culture, and they they got better. Even even people thought they were tanking, and they ended up not really tanking in. Last question on the Patriots: um, Do you think they screwed up letting Brady go, or was the timing right? I think the timing was probably right. I think they needed to look toward the future at some point. Now let's face it: I think uh, age is undefeated, right? I mean, he's forty yep. what years old. Right. At some point. Uh, and, and if you look at the tape, there's a little slip of, of arm strength and some of the other things that he has made up for with his instincts and, and great knowledge of the game and anticipation. But at some point, it's not going to go on. And I think Bill liked his options with Stidham, even though it wasn't ideal for everybody else. And then Cam fell in his lap. So he may have rolled the dice a little bit, but I think he's going to come out ahead in this one. I think he'll have an answer at quarterback in the next two or three years. And I'm not sure Tampa will. That's the bad news for them. Yep, absolutely. Great stuff there on New England. Let's move on to the front office re-signings of John Lynch and uh, Rick Spielman. It's funny, this morning as I was researching Randy, as you know, these jobs are hard. I mean, everyone has this idea of, you know what, if I was going to build a team, I would start with the left tackle, and, I would, and it doesn't. that's not what how it works. You don't start with a clean slate. You inherit someone else's mess. The owner's mad or, you know, whatever. And so I found this great quote from... Bart Starr, of all people, he was 13 and 29 as the head coach and GM for the Packers when he started out. And he was asked if he regretted taking the job. And Bart Starr said, no. But when I took the job, I asked the fans for their patience and their prayers. I think if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably ask for a ton of money and a 10-year contract. So <laughs> that's that's really what uh, almost John Lynch is getting here uh, with, <laughs> with uh, the 49ers. And then Spielman goes back to the Vikings. So we're keeping together a couple of you know, pretty successful head coach, general manager um, tandem. Certainly the track record for Zimmer and Spielman is longer. Uh, they are, I believe, uh, the seventh best winning percentage since they've been together. Let's start with the 49ers. Overall thoughts on them re-upping with Lynch and just sort of where they stand? Well, I think that they had no question but to re-up with John. I do think John has uh, the, the, the characteristics to be a longtime GM in the league. I wouldn't have known that had I not been able to spend a little time with him the last couple of years. I'm impressed by what John has done. And the thing that John, we joked about it earlier in the podcast, we have to know what we're not. John knows what he's not. He's got some people around him that do a good job. He's got a personnel director that's going to be a GM at some point. He's got another personnel director that's been a GM at one point. So he's surrounded himself with knowledge and uh, a lot of acronym for the NFL. So that does not surprise me. I think Kyle Shanahan is one of the better coaches in the league. His play calling might make him top two or three in the league. 
and and that's something that they work together great. I think the misnomer people hear about or 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 figure try to figure out when GMs get these jobs, they think it is like you said about sitting in a room and picking players, like like guys would do at fantasy football night. You know, sit around and pick a left tackle or sit around and pick a right guard. That is. Team building is important, and don't get me wrong, you have to be able to evaluate to do that. But to be the face of the franchise, you probably spend less time looking at film and picking players than any of the other chores that come with being a GM. You've got to be a leader. You've got to be a communicator. There were a lot of days I would come home at night and wonder, what the heck did I do today? I did absolutely nothing. All I did was talk to people all day long. But that comes with the territory. You've got to communicate and lead the franchise, and that means meeting with coaches, meeting with equipment guys, meeting with uh, trainers, uh, doctors, all kinds of stuff. I used to beg for a little time to watch film. I used to tell my executive assistant, I'd say, just give me an hour so I can watch film and, and let me be. And that kept my sanity because of all the other distractions in the world. I think John has found a way to do that. And you mentioned Minnesota. I know Rick for, ha has found a way to do that. Rick's a seasoned, longtime veteran in the business who has been very successful at communicating with people, surrounding himself so that he's not the smartest guy in the room. And that's important as well. These guys, they deserve the extensions. And, and, and it's, it, it kind of surprised me that more teams don't seek out people just like that for these jobs. And again, I'm not against young guys getting a first chance. That's not a problem at all. But these guys have been around. Nothing's going to surprise them. And even John is new at the new. He's, he's relatively new at the business. He's been in football a long time. And again, the, I can't underestimate the people they've surrounded themselves with having an effect on the success of their franchises. No doubt. I mean, one of the reasons we don't see second time GMs is because the young guys who get the jobs don't feel, they sometimes feel threatened, you know, by the guy who knows more than they do. Um, we'll get to the, the Vikings in a minute. The 49ers are interesting to me because uh, they're 23 and 25 with Shanahan and, and Lynch, but obviously trended way up in the right direction this last year. We're great on defense, but I just sort of have this feeling that they've peaked, you know, and I, uh, that may be totally unfair, but I, I didn't like them losing DeForest Buckner. I mean, I think we've seen two moves this offseason where uh, elite young playmakers in their prime have been traded away. Uh, that's Buckner and Jamal Adams in an era when typically the cap isn't a problem. People know how to manage it. Um, how do you feel about where they're at? And does, does that move, is that move a bad sign of where they're at? Yeah, I think, I think it's really a, uh, uh an important question that you bring up because I, I don't think the cap in this day and age restricts you from keeping your best players. I really don't. And regardless of what position they play, I think you've got to find a way to keep good players. And in the 49ers case, letting De, or trading DeForest Buckner, I don't think they're going to get equal value. They got a first round pick, but they didn't get a player, in my opinion, that holds up to Buckner standards. The other interesting one they lost is Emmanuel Sanders, who they gave up some capital, draft capital for a year ago and was very productive in that system. He ends up moving on to New Orleans, and I think it's a great signing for New Orleans because he can catch, He can. he's very instinctive, he's a great route runner. So the 49ers lose that on offense as well. And then they replaced him with a guy like Travis Benjamin, who came from the Chargers with a long hit litany of being injured, not playing a full season. And I think I read this morning where he's opted out already. So they've got a big a gap to fill in my mind on both sides of the ball. You bring up the point of the the, the Forrest Buckner and the defensive lineman. I don't. I would have a really hard time trading a defensive lineman at all because they are so hard to find. Interior guys like him that can rush the passer. We saw what the Chiefs did with their interior guy, Chris Jones. They paid him a ton of money and kept him. 
I just think letting those guys go is very, very questionable. And, and we'll see how they come out of it. But I think you're right. The 49ers, they definitely, there's only one step they can go higher after peaking last year, and, and that's to win the Super Bowl. Yep. Yep. I don't know that they're going to do that. I think their division is much tougher this year. So those are two moves, though, one on each side of the ball that I think will will bear some watching when we do get to football. Absolutely. Great. So let, let's move on to the Vikings. I like the divisional context. We just talked about the 49ers and hey, it's tough with Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll together. Looks like a good marriage with Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray. Goff and McVeigh have already been to a Super Bowl. So very tough uh, in the NFC West. In the in the NFC North, I mean, we can make the case that, I mean, does this make the, the Vikings the stablest team in, <laughs> in the division with these two guys together and Zimmer and, and, uh, and Rick Spielman? Well, it does for me. I, I don't think there's any doubt about it that stability in your front office and your, your head coach gives you a chance to really fulfill a longer-term plan. And when I say longer-term in the NFL nowadays, that's two or three years. So I think <laughs> these guys being re-signed and, and, and the clear leaders uh, of their franchises in every way, I think that bodes well for them in their own division. I think there's some questionable um, positions throughout that in that NFC North in other cities. For example, I know the Chicago Bears, they're struggling. Their GM and head coach are fighting for a job. I think Detroit's GM and head coach, they're fighting for a job to prove their credibility as well. And then in, in Green Bay, even though they do have uh, Rodgers at quarterback, there's still some question as to how that rebuild's going, even though they won a bunch of games last year. So we will see. I think this definitely gives the Vikings a leg up and anytime you can gain some stability with proven winners, I think you're ahead of the game. And I think they've done that within the NFC North. Very hard to find quarterbacks in this league. So my question on the Vikings is, are they sort of, is it unfair to say they're signing up to sort of be, you know, a team that's going to be 10 and six a lot, but is never going to get over the hump because they're, you know, Kirk Cousins had him over a barrel and, and did another extension. And heck, he's probably going to be there as long as Zimmer possibly at this point. Or no, do you think that, uh, they can win it all, uh, get to the Super Bowl with Cousins. Is this, has this team peaked? Where do they kind of stand? And, you know, was it a good time for Zimmer and Rick to re-up because they've peaked? I think the fact that they've redone Kurt's deal a couple times now tells me that he's their quarterback. Now, we can debate if he's good enough or not. I don't know. I personally think they're trading water a little bit there. But I do think they've built a really good team around him. They've made sound decisions on defense, especially. They've made sound decisions to give them some options uh, for weapons on, on the offensive side. So I think if, if their feeling is if Kirk can be a little above average and not cost them, which he's always been risk averse, he doesn't take a lot of bad sacks and a lot of make a lot of bad decisions. I think they figure that will pay off in the long run. They're not going to get great plays from him. But I'll say this about Kirk Cousins, and I've always been kind of lukewarm about him. He is a better deep thrower of the ball than anybody gives him credit for. Everybody thinks he's a dink and dunk and a, a, just a, a caretaker of the offense. But Kurt has, has become a good deep ball thrower, and I think that's a little bit of an underestimated characteristic of his that I think could pay dividends for them down the road. They'll, they'll still be able to push the ball a little bit downfield. Yeah, absolutely. I think he is a, an accurate passer, too, um, You know, better than he gets credit for. There's just something about him that people don't you – know, that people don't love. I mean, they don't rally around him. And you sometimes see other quarterbacks who may not even be as skilled, but you feel like they are galvanize, a galvanizing force on the team. I think if you're a Viking fan, you'd like to see that a little more. And may, maybe it happens, or maybe he just is what he is. 
I agree with you. I think he probably is what he is, and I would look for the Vikings to draft a quarterback here in the next couple of years. Yep, absolutely. Okay, interesting stuff there with 49ers and Vikings. The XFL is very interesting to me because it's such a weird time. You wouldn't think normally that the X, a new league would be thinking about coming back, but with the XFL being so much smaller, they actually could maybe pull off a bubble in a way that the, the NFL can't. They may actually be better positioned to play football in this weird, um, scary sort of COVID uh, environment. What were your initial thoughts? And again, you worked pro personnel for the Houston Roughnecks and the X and the XFL. What were your initial thoughts when you saw this ownership group come together with with The Rock? Well, yeah, I, I smiled. I'll, I'll say that. I, I'm just a little bit <laughs> curious myself the way the deal did come together. Um, having been a part of the league, I kind of know the ins and outs of. Of, of a couple different levels of how the team oper- or how the league operated before that. I was a little surprised, Mike, by the, by the price tag that was attached. I thought it was very low. I anticipated it being a lot more than that. But I do know that ESPN, that Fox, some of the big hitters, they're obviously nervous about COVID and, and they were involved in, in this bid, but ended up not placing a bid because of that. So some of the big hitters did pull out. But The Rock himself, uh, he has built his own empire, much like Vince McMahon built his. He's known as a promoter. He's known as a marketer. And this league had a marketing following. It had a, 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 whether it's a niche or what, but there was a lot of people in this country that followed this XFL for whatever reason. And I think there's a lot of curiosity still about it. And so a guy like The Rock may have been a perfect owner to have this thing land in his lap pretty much because I think he got it at a bargain. So because you were so, I mean, you were, you were director of pro, you were the pro director there, what, three months ago? I mean, it's not that long ago. What, four months ago? Yeah, we were 5-0 and at the end of the season. And June Jones and I were really responsible for building this team with our staff. So the two of us kind of took six months to, to build this from scratch. It was a great exercise. It was a lot of fun. And if you do what I do for a living, it's a, it's a great job to have. So we enjoyed it and worked together good and, and had a ball doing it. But yeah, we ended up, I want to say the second week of March, right after the, the COVID thing hit, right after the Rudy Gobert uh, positive test, uh, the league decided to shutter its doors. So that's when it went down anyway. So then the news of it comes back, what was your day like then yesterday or the, you know, when it happened? Um, you know, phone ringing or what was Yeah, it was a little crazy to be honest with you. And, and again, I don't know any more than anybody else. I, the Rock didn't call me for advice. I know that. But yeah, I mean, I did some live TV in Houston. I had coaches calling me all day. I did radio, a CBS national show, and everybody wanted to talk about The Rock. That's all. That's why I'm saying there's there's a media following out there. And then again, it was big in Houston. We had 20,000 people at our games, and it was a cool environment, and the people really liked it. So I can see the interest level. Um, and now people are curious as to what he's going to do with it. I think the first thing Rock has to do is he's got to make TV deals with his media partners. He's got to make sure that Fox is in, that ESPN is in, and then they'll figure out what they're going to do football-wise going forward. You mentioned a bubble. You know, I could see them selling a package to the media partners of a 10-game season with two more weeks of playoffs in a bubble fashion and packaging up in a nice bow for content, and even this spring if they can perfect the bubble process. Yep. Let's segue this then into uh, kind of, you know, just related football in this in this COVID environment. If you're a GM, let's just let's say you're in the NFL, um, what do you have to be doing especially well right now? And I just think of, you know, people don't really 
know about all the you know equipment people and training staff the video people there's a huge behind the scenes workforce here that can't opt out <laughs> that is needed to do the day-to-day -day. i mean to some of these coaches need their help all the time so if you're the gm of, of a team right now in the nfl what has to be done really well well you've almost got to be the union leader for that group of people not only do you have to take care of your players and coaches and and staff on that side but Someone does have to look out for the video guys, for the equipment guys, for the trainers, the medical staff, everybody. And there's a lot of people involved, as you know, Mike, in running these franchises and, and doing the work behind the scenes. And you're right, a guy making 50 grand that shows up for work every day, it's a struggle for him. Now he's on the front line. He's on the front line like, like a hospital worker or anybody else uh, when he comes to work every day. So someone does have to look out for those guys. I know the GMs around the league, and I've talked to a couple of them, they are... Uh, spending exhaustive time doing just that, communicating with these groups, with their own HR departments, with their own non-football people. It's it Again, it goes back to a GM. There, there is a small part of it where you get to actually sit in a room and pick players. The rest of it is managing a group of people who have concerns, who have families. I think, again, and I keep going back to this, the success that some of these teams are measured by this year under COVID in this system are going to be a lot predicated on the best communicators moving ahead. I think if you can communicate and if you can keep everybody headed in the right direction and keep the train from going off the tracks better than the next guy, and that excites me as a GM, I think I can do it better than the next guy, that's going to be what we're measured on. That's going to go a long ways toward if you're successful in this environment. Absolutely. And we were thinking, you know, as you try to uh, pull these teams together and, and keep them on the same page and make sure that no one's taking undue risks that put everyone else at, at risk. What about the bottom of your roster now? I mean, who, what type of player are you looking for? Is it different than before? Uh, because uh, you can't have people go showing up at a party with 30 people. Yeah, no doubt. You're, I, I was happy to see that the practice squads got extended. I think they had to do that. They had to lengthen those out. So there's 16 players on a practice squad now. And usually the makeup of that is comes at a little bit of a debate between coaches, scouts, front office, You know, between a player that's on there that's ready to play now versus a player that's a developmental player that probably isn't valuable to you for another year or two. I think those debates go out the window this year, really, because I think player development is going to take a backseat to plug-and-play guys that you can line up with week in and week out. So you've almost got to take maybe 10 or 12 of those 16 and make it players that can play right now so that, player, that coaches can interchange guys. Guys get injured, obviously, that happens, but now you have COVID testing and other things, and there's going to be positive tests. That is a fact. So I think the longer those lists go on practice squads with, with experienced veteran players, that's going to go a long ways toward people per, uh, being successful later in the season. We'll, we'll wrap this up, then let's tie it all back with the XFL. What opportunities exist if there's an XFL back for personnel because of the way the NFL is proceeding on COVID? What, what would you be thinking if you were putting together um, you know, a roster in the XFL? And what are those XFL-level players you know, what do they have to consider? Yeah, right now I would be happy to be an XFL team builder because there are a lot of players available. You know, teams are going from 90 to 80. Most have done that already. So there's a bunch of good players that have already been released that normally wouldn't get released until September. But now those guys are out there on the street. 
I think an XFL league that's prepared or any spring league that's prepared, if the CFL was still operating, they'd be in the mix too and be able to up the quality of their players. So there will be players available. I think some of those players who end up on practice squads in the NFL might be better served playing in an XFL season and getting on tape for 10 weeks if they want to better their career. Sure, they might make a tad bit more money playing in the NFL, but I could make a strong case for it being better for their career to be in the NFL playing, I mean, be in the XFL playing 10 games on Saturday and Sunday in front of 32 NFL teams. Absolutely. Instead of being in front of 30 people that are allowed on the practice field to watch uh, practice and none of that information ever gets out. I mean, the film is much more valuable than being on a practice squad unless you're going to get into to an NFL game. So, Like I mentioned lots- to you before, there were a couple of players that reached out to me yesterday from NFL rosters who were with us in, in Houston that are ready to go back to, to play for The Rock instead of being on a practice squad. So it's funny how, how people think. No doubt about it. Well, we have motored through these these topics fast. Appreciate everybody for uh, coming along. Randy, we'll do it again soon. Thank you, and uh, have a great week. Sounds good. Till next time.